Heavenly Father, we, we've come to you now in the middle of a summertime, Sunday, the time of year when so many people find uh, time to relax and to uh, be off work. Many of our members are gone, Father, for that very reason, enjoying a day of rest and vacation. Please keep them in your safety, Father, and in your care, and bring them back to us in due time. But, Father, meanwhile, we thank you for these chances every year to relax and to uh, perhaps slow down a little bit. Father, we, we know that you have uh, designed the world with seasons that show us all sides of your grace and uh, tell a story even in the way that they present us with uh, periods in, in life that are dormant, followed by periods of new life and growth and then seasons, Father, in which we may experience falling away. We may experience a time of um, retreat. And Lord, the book of Judges is an opportunity for us to see those seasons in a way playing out in the lives of people. In a pattern, Father, that was uh, unfortunate, although so familiar to us. Lord, let us learn from this this morning and in the weeks to come, this, this example. And let us learn the proper things from it. Not just, Father, that you are merciful and faithful and kind, but also, Father, that we must return that favor in obedience. That we are to follow you, Father, all the days of our life and not just in seasons. We pray, Father, you'd let us see, maybe in our own lives today, how our walk with you is incomplete. Perhaps it is uh, inconsistent. Perhaps, Father, we are far from you in some ways. And maybe that's why we're here today, Father, to hear the truth. Whatever the purpose you may have, Lord, let it, let it be one that we would uh, receive joyfully, gladly, obediently. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The introduction to Judges is finally behind us. And probably thankfully so. Three weeks of that is probably enough for anyone. So we're well prepared now. We should be well prepared to move into the study proper. Beginning today in chapter 3, continuing into chapter 16, we are in the heart of the narrative of the book. And in this period from chapters 3 through 16, we're going to study 12 judges. There are 12 judges in the book of Judges. Each one comes to power during some period of time in these 300 years of Israel's history. They are not like kings. They are not like kings in the sense that one passes his authority and rule on to the next in turn, at the death of one comes the inauguration of another. That is not how judges work. Instead, judges operate more like a prophet operates. They are men who are raised up, in some cases a woman, who are raised up independent of one another at various points in history and at unpredictable times. Some even operate concurrently. And now the number 12 is itself a bit of an interest to us, knowing that numbers in Scripture take particular meaning from how they're used. And the number 12 represents God ruling his people through appointed representatives. That's the meaning we assign to that number. And you see it represented in a variety of ways. For example, the apostles, of course, 12 men who carried the leadership of the church. You have the 12 tribes of Israel who carried God's purpose in that time. Now we have 12 judges. That's why we call this time in Israel's history a theocracy. Theocracy is a government where God himself rules, and he does that through representatives who bring the word and direct the people and ultimately judge their mistakes. That's this period of history, the theocracy of Israel. Now, to start this section today, we look at the first six verses of chapter 3. And this passage is marked out separately by what it says. In fact, in the weeks that we've studied so far, you notice I've emphasized there's a handout. There's still copies in the back for anyone who hasn't received one yet. You'll notice in your handout that this section of chapter 3 is designated separately because it's in this section that you're going to find the Lord announcing something, describing something, a test, in other words, that sets up the entirety of the rest of this book, all the way through the heart of the book. 
The test God specifies in these six verses will outline four purposes for why the Lord is allowing the Canaanites to stay in the land and test Israel. Why are these people that God wanted removed now allowed to stay amidst the people of Israel? That purpose is announced now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezizites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Now, this isn't the first time that the Lord has said that the people of Israel are going to be tested by the Canaanite people. We saw that earlier in chapter 2, remember? In chapter 2, the angel of the Lord said that the Canaanites would be used to test the hearts of God's people. So this is not news. Now, back in chapter 2, when the Lord gave that first pronouncement under the angel of the Lord, he gave two reasons at that time for why this test was going to take place. And those two, briefly, are first, that the Canaanites are going to reveal the hearts of the people because the pagan influence of the Canaanites will give opportunity for Israel to make a choice. Are they going to worship the God who brought them into the land, or are they going to worship the gods of these people around them? That was the first reason for the test. And we said last time, and when we looked at chapter 2, that some in Israel are going to pass this test. They're going to do well. They're going to remain faithful. But many others are not. They're going to fall because of this test and go after foreign gods. That was point one. Then secondly, we heard the angel of the Lord saying that the Canaanites would be retribution to the people of God, to the Israelites, because of the sin they had already committed under the covenant. Remember, he compared them to a thorn in the side of the people. So the second reason that the people are going to remain in the land is to plunder, enslave, and just generally harass the people of Israel. And that would make them instruments of discipline, instruments of punishment to the people from God. Now, to those two reasons, chapter 3 now adds two more for why the Canaanites are being left in the land. Looking at the passage I just read in verse 2, the Lord says he wants this generation of Israel to experience warfare. The generation that preceded this one, the one that was under Joshua, they knew warfare. They fought their way into the land. But this generation of Israel, they are basically the baby boomer generation of Israel. They didn't fight for what they have. Their prosperity was handed to them by parents who did fight to bring them into the land. And as a result of that difference, it has produced a degree of entitlement, uh, unwillingness to obey authority, evident in this generation that is now in the land. And that's why I compare them to the baby boomers, not to disparage those of you who fit into that period of time, but classically the, the 60s flower child and the like were the products of parents who produced this kind of upbringing. Now that's why the Lord wants them to experience warfare in fighting the Canaanites in the land. You notice what he says. He says, I want them to be taught. Now, at first, you might think that God is saying he wants them to learn the art of warfare. That is how to become more effective warriors. But that's not what he's saying, because that wouldn't make any sense. I mean, think about it. 
Israel has never been a mighty nation of warriors. Not even the previous generation under Joshua was such a generation. All the great victories that Joshua's generation led, starting with Jericho, only came because the Lord did the fighting. Not because they were good at it. They brought nothing to the fight. It was the God of Israel that did all the fighting. In fact, the people of the land that they were fighting against said exactly that same thing. They said, their Lord, their God is fighting for them. They saw that. And that's the Lord's point. This generation has forgotten how the Lord delivered Israel in the past in warfare. They don't understand. They don't appreciate the power of the Lord, the one with whom they have a covenant, because they haven't seen it on display. And so the Lord says, I want to teach them warfare. But what he means is I want to teach them warfare in the way I fight for them. The Lord's way of warfare is that we obey his commands and then we watch him win victories for us. That's what warfare with the Lord looks like. It's never going to be about you and I taking up arms, figuratively or otherwise, and by our own might and strength, defeating some enemy that stands before us. The Lord has never done it any other way. He hasn't stopped doing it now any more than he was going to stop doing it then. Today, the, the battle is done through the church primarily, and the church is going to be allowed, is going to be taught warfare in the very fact that God allows us to experience conflict and trial and calamity so that we can learn something about him in the process. Think about the kind of generation that would result within the church if we did not have to face such battle and therefore see him at work on our behalf. What kind of generation comes out of that lack of experience? Well, some might argue the very generation that dominates the church today. The Lord delights to show himself strong, and he does so best when we are in the midst of our enemies. So from time to time, this is what he does. He will turn your circumstances, my circumstances, in ways that rock our boat or rock our world. And as a result, that calamity opens opportunity. Now, he doesn't do this to hurt us. His intent is not to crush us, but he wants to show up in a powerful way. And friends, here's what you need to remember. The Lord is often fighting for a different objective than we are as we face these kinds of trials. For example, when bad times come, you and I are prone to seeing the person or the situation that we're confronted with as the problem itself, as the thing or the person who needs to be defeated. And therefore, we see our battle as against something or someone who is moving us away from peace and contentment, which is where we want to be. So we define winning the battle as returning to our previous circumstances of peace and contentment. So if someone comes into my life and causes me stress and trial of one kind or another, that's a disruption of my peace. My goal in the battle is to remove that obstacle to peace and get right back to where I was. Israel's doing that very same thing, and you'll see it in the book of Judges as we move forward. They perceive their circumstances as such that they have peace in the land, but now that's at risk because of all of these Canaanites attacking us and plundering us and enslaving us. So when they go to battle... Their goal in their battle is to find a way to live peacefully in the land. Well, there's a lot of ways to achieve that if that's your goal. One of the ways you do it is by compromise, by living side by side with these Canaanites, by finding some way to, as the saying goes, can't we all just get along? If your goal is peace, that will become your outcome. If that's what you're shooting for, that's likely what you're going to get. The problem is that is not the Lord's goal. That's not his purpose in bringing the conflict. That's not what he's all about. The Lord's goal is to change their hearts through the struggle that they're going to experience in the course of that battle. Remember, the Lord doesn't need your might and he doesn't need your wisdom in order to conquer the enemy 
that you're confronting. The Lord has the power to win that battle all by himself. He could have driven out the Canaanites, right? He could have driven them out without so much as a hand by any of the Israelites. He uses hornets if he needs to. He doesn't need us to accomplish the outcome. In fact, Israel's strength was immaterial to the outcome. And that's the same for you and I. He can put an end to any struggle you face, any barrier in your life, anything that's creating conflict in your life. Those struggles are well within his ability to get rid of at any point, at any point. The only reason you and I are experiencing any kind of conflict, struggle, trial, stress or otherwise right now is because he's allowing it. Now, it may trace to some sin. Its origins may have been in some human mistake. Absolutely. But that just begs the bigger question. Why isn't the Lord dealing with that? Well, how is does he deal with it except that he brings it to the surface so that the conflict can result so that there can be some kind of resolution through that? That is his process because he wants to train us up in warfare, just as he was trying to do for Israel as a new Christian or even as a moderately mature Christian. We're not that good at confronting spiritual battles as we think we are generally. When you suffer an insult or attack, you have just been thrust into a spiritual test. When you experience a disaster, like a fire or a flood, your war has begun. Or when you lose a job, or when you contract an illness, or you have a broken relationship, or you just stress out over an exam or some kind of work assignment, friends, the battle has begun. Now, you're not fighting alone. The Lord is your strength. He has the power to win the battle. And as you face the trials, you will be strengthened by him in that battle. But the war is there for a good purpose. It's supposed to expose in you the spiritual weaknesses he wants to contend with. Do you get frustrated when things don't go your way? Do you get angry? Do you lose patience? Do you pout? Do you go silent? These are not healthy parts of your personality and my personality. They need to go away. They need to be dealt with. You're not going to deal with them until they're brought out in a way where the Lord can say, see, see this. This is you. See what you're doing right now. Maybe you ought to fix that. I can help you. Are you interested? In the process, he reshapes our hearts. That's why, friends, the Bible says pray for trials. Our degree of spiritual maturity is directly proportional to our experience in spiritual warfare. The church has always been strongest, by the way, during periods of persecution, not during periods of ease. And when the battles come, yes, there are consequences and there will sometimes be casualties. And by that, I mean that there are those believers who are unable or unwilling to learn from these experiences. So they just repeat them. Or even in some cases, there are those who, because of these trials, fall away from walking with the Lord altogether and just live a life of what I think of as pouting in the faith. And in the worst case, the test might actually reveal that some of us aren't who we think we are in the Lord, that there might be some among us who don't know him truly. But for the one who is trained up by the Lord's discipline, the Bible says there will be the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the outcome of these battles. So in the book of Judges, the Lord is eager to deliver this lesson to the people, a lesson that can only be learned by warfare. And for Israel, the warfare will not only be spiritual, but it will be literal on the battlefield, they're going to come into conflict with the Canaanites and the Canaanites are going to become spiritual stumbling blocks at times and other times military adversaries. But in both cases, Israel is going to be put to the test. They're going to be taught and they're going to be shown the Lord's power. That's the purpose in this ongoing warfare within Israel. Finally, the Lord says that the Canaanite people in the land will serve to test Israel's commitment to the covenant. 
The Lord says in verse four, I want to find out if they would obey the commandment of the Lord, the ones given in the law through Moses. Now, that seems like a strange reason as well, doesn't it? First of all, they've already broken the covenant. I mean, if the question is, are they going to keep my covenant? Are they going to keep my commandments? It already has his answer. Answer is no, they haven't. So that's already evident. Secondly, the Lord doesn't need a test to know their hearts. The Lord knows every man's heart at all times. There's no point in which God is confused or unclear about what you and I believe in our heart concerning him, or even for that matter, what we're going to do in the future. He knows all things even before they happen. So why does he need this test? Why this question? Well, like all tests in Scripture, this isn't intended to inform the Lord. The audience is Israel itself and God's people throughout time, you and I included, as we read the Scriptures. So when the Lord asks if he should reveal their hearts here through this test, or if he can, he's saying much the same thing he said to Abraham back in Genesis when he asked, should I reveal to Abraham all that I'm about to do in Sodom? If you remember that story. Back then, he was prepared to take Sodom and judge it, and he knew that Abraham had an interest in Lot and Lot's family, so he asks a rhetorical question. Should I let Abraham know what I'm about to go do? But the whole point of the question is a statement. I'm going to let Abraham know what I'm about to go do. So that why? So that Abraham can do what he wanted Abraham to do, which was intervene. The question was asked for the purpose. And likewise here, these years are going to reveal something to us. They're going to reveal the hearts of the people who lived in that day. Hearts God knew well, but we need to see clearly as well. And in the process, we learn a principle. And the book of Judges is focused on this principle right from the start. The principle is human judges cannot rule over sinful human hearts. That a covenant written on stone does not compel righteousness in us. That sin and rebellion is hardwired into the very nature of humanity. And learning that is all you need to know to recognize that you have to seek a different solution if you're going to reconcile to God. That if the problem is sin and God's judgment for it, the solution can't be found in human judges or even human kings, which will come later and show themselves to be equally incapable of dealing with this problem. What is it that we must look for then? Well, a different covenant to begin with, under different terms. Because if Israel cannot find obedience to God's law, then how could anyone find obedience to God? Because Israel had every advantage that you could have. Paul sums it up this way in Romans 3.19. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Notice what he says in 3.19. He says, what the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that is to Israel. So what the law said, it said to Israel. And then Paul says, but why did Israel possess a law they couldn't keep? He says, so that every mouth might be shut and that everyone in the world might be accountable. You see his point? He says it was given to one people, Israel, so that through their experience trying to live under it unsuccessfully, The whole world could look and understand no one can do it. They were the example to the world that living under law does not gain us righteousness. That no flesh will be justified by works of the law. We only learn more and more about the pervasive, unrelenting nature of sin when we watch a group of people given the chance to try to live under it. 
That's the proper perspective on Israel and the law, by the way. Here's a group of people God called out from amongst the nations and said, you're my special people. Here, let's show the world how impossible it is to live by works of law. Here's my law. You guys try to do it for a while and everyone else will watch. And I'm going to write it down so that they don't miss it. And when everybody gets a chance to see how miserably you failed at trying to keep law, we'll all come to the same conclusion. No flesh will be justified by works of law. That's the reason for this test. It's to reveal to us how impossible it is for law or rulers or judges to rescue us from our sin nature. For friends, if it were ever possible that a judge would have been able to do that, this would have been the point in time when it would have happened, when Israel had everything going for them at the start. They had the land set out before them. They had the Lord leading them in battles and winning battles under Joshua. They had the word of God preserved through Moses. They had a priesthood. They had a tabernacle filled with his Shekinah glory. They had a covenant with a God who is forever faithful. There's nothing missing. No ingredient was left out of this recipe. And the recipe resulted in what? Them going after the gods of the Canaanites. Why? Well, because obedience to God requires something more powerful than a law written on stone. It requires a law written on your heart. A force within you to change you so that you would actually go into obedience rather than simply hear the words and not do that. And it requires a new body, ultimately, one that has a desire to do the right thing and is not weighted down by a sin nature that will only do the wrong thing. Judges don't fix these problems. Human rulers can't make these things change. But God's prepared to give us these things. Before you can understand the need for them, though, what has to happen? You have to understand the impossibility of succeeding in any other way. And to provide that point, look what Samuel does next in the last part of today's lesson. Samuel describes the first of the 12 judges. Now, in what we're going to study across these 12 judges, each story gets a little longer, a little more involved, a little more messy. The situation doesn't resolve quite so cleanly. In other words, you'll begin to notice across these 12 judges is that the judges themselves become less and less effective. They have less control. They get messier. The heroes get less righteousness in their own life. It just deteriorates as you move through the book. But as you look at them, there's a pattern established. We're going to look at the first one today to see that pattern and watch it play out through the rest. In the first judge, there's only five verses that tell the whole story of the first judge. Seven through eleven. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan, Rishathaim, eight years. While the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. Then the land had rest forty years, and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. A short account. And in this short account of the first judge, as I said, there is a pattern, one that is repeated. Now, numbers matter in Scripture, and here's another one for you. This pattern will repeat seven times across the book of Judges. And the pattern's actually easy to see here. Samuel even repeats several key phrases across the seven examples so that he'll be sure we won't miss them when he uses them. 
Now, not every phrase appears in every example, but all the phrases are found in this first example. So this first example is the archetype for the rest of what we'll see in the book. The first phrase of this pattern begins in verse seven. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This will be the phrase that begins each of these seven stories or seven major examples in the book of Judges. The Lord will begin by saying Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, specifically worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. In Canaanite mythology, the chief god was El, who was the father of all the other gods in their mythology. So you had El at the top. Then he had his wife, Asherah, or Asheroth. She was considered the mother of all gods and the goddess of the sea. Then there was Baal. He was the god of rain and fertility. Then you have Ashtoreth, who was the female counterpart to Baal. She was responsible for female fertility in their culture, and she was the goddess of love and war. Then you have Anna, who is Baal's sister, and his wife. Those are the five primary gods of Canaan. It's those five primary gods that entrap the Israelites. And so when you hear about Asherah or Ashtaroth or Baal, these are the gods we're talking about, the Canaanite five gods. Notice the Lord's declaration in verse 7. He says, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that is a direct repudiation of the people's perspective. What was the people's perspective in the book of Judges? The famous line that gets repeated over and over again. They did what was right in their own eyes. But now you hear that in the sight of the Lord, the people were doing evil. In the case of man, eyes are a part of the body, right? Eyes are flesh. So in the eyes of humanity, they did what they thought was right. But it was the sight which suggests wisdom and insight and truth. The seeing, knowing of God that came in and declared the opposite to be true. This is not good. This is evil. Moreover, the Lord being the true judge, well, whose opinion matters? The Lord's opinion is the only one that matters in this case. So in verse 8, we learn his anger burned against the people because of their sin. And as promised, he uses the people of Canaan to bring judgment. This is the second phrase in the pattern. So the first phrase you'll see is they did evil in the sight of the Lord. The second phrase is that they were going to be sold into the hands of the enemy or that God will hand them over to their enemies as a result. Now, friends, when you see this happening, there are circumstances going negatively. This isn't luck or bad chance or whatever. This is God purposely turning them providentially into the hands of their enemy. Once again, then, they are enslaved. Now, they didn't leave the land, but this king who was king of Mesopotamia came in and captured all of Canaan and subjugated all of Israel and made them slaves in their own land. His name is Kushan Rishathaim. The second part of his name there literally means double wicked or doubly wicked. And he oppressed Israel greatly. At some point in that time, at eight year point, they learn their lesson. And they cry to the Lord for mercy. And now you see the third phrase in the pattern. This will be coming up again and again. After some period of time, confronted with the consequences of their sin, the people of Israel finally get it. And they cry out to the Lord asking for help. They cry out in mercy. And that leads to the fourth part of the pattern when the Lord will be seen to have heard their cry and then to raise up a deliverer. Of some kind, in this case, a judge, Othniel, Caleb's younger brother. The fact that it's Othniel, that he could be Caleb's younger brother, that tells you this did not happen too long into their time in the land because Caleb came in to the land originally. So this is a relatively recent thing after they enter the land. That man that God raises up, that's God's gift back to Israel as a response to their cry. Othniel, in this case, is that man. He has the spirit coming upon him. This is an interesting moment for just a sidebar discussion about the Spirit. In the Old Testament, this is the principal ministry of the Holy Spirit. He came upon an individual at God's direction. At some point, 
for a purpose God ordained to give them some outcome in ministry. Like, for example, Joshua or the men who built the tabernacle were said to have had the spirit come upon them for that work of ministry. It did not depend on the character of the person. This is not an endorsement. This didn't mean that they were a good person necessarily or that they were always going to be a good person. It was unlike the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. Today, the spirit is associated with the salvation of an individual. And because he cannot depart, he seals that person and designates him forevermore as a member of a body. That's the purpose in the New Testament time. With that comes gifts and empowerment to serve God. But the purpose in the Old Testament was only and strictly for the empowerment piece, for that person to do work according to God's will for some period of time. And therefore it could come and it could go later. It did not mark them as a believer. The result of the man receiving the spirit of the Lord in the case of Othniel is that he had obtained enough power, wisdom, insight and and the rest to while they were under the enslavement of this man, Kushan, they were able to rebel and push him out of the land. And we don't know any of the details, by the way. There's no record beyond this of what he did, how he did it, how it worked. We only know the outcome. And really, that tells you why this first story is here, to set a pattern. The details matter less in this case than the pattern. They sin. They're put into the hands of their enemies. They're oppressed. They cry out. God raises up a deliverer. He then puts the oppressor into the hands of Israel. You notice he says Kushan was given into Othniel's hand. And then as a result, they now experience peace and rest in the land. Now, does that whole story sound a little bit like a mini Exodus story to you? I mean, did you realize that even after they left Egypt and came into the land, that Israel was soon thereafter enslaved again for eight years, the whole nation? God gave a new generation of Israel a chance to learn warfare in the same way that he did their ancestors. They were taught that sin leads to slavery. They were taught that disobedience to God produces a slavery of sin and death. But if they repent, if they cry for mercy, God will raise up a deliverer. That same pattern has been reestablished in this next generation. Now, notice the length of the rest. Forty years. Here's another number that you should see immediate significance in. The number 40 in Scripture represents testing. As Jesus was tested in the wilderness 40 days and the people wandered in the desert for 40 years, now you see a generation experiencing 40 years of rest in the land. And this isn't just the Exodus story. This is the gospel. We enter into slavery by sin, being a slave to that sin. We live perpetually in that time until we lift up our eyes, cry in mercy for God to send us a deliverer, which he does through Christ. By our faith in Christ, we are delivered. We are granted mercy from that sin. In faithfulness to his covenant, he wins the battle over our slavery. And once you have that victory, you rest in that work. Earthly judges do it for them for a time. Christ is pictured in that for he does it for eternity. This pattern is going to repeat itself seven times in the book of Judges over the 12 judges that we're going to see. But as I said a moment ago, even as that pattern repeats, it starts to change. It gets a little worse. Every time the sin is worse than the time before. Every time the victory is less complete than it was with Othniel. And every time the peace and the rest that follows gets shorter and more disruptive. What we learn is that despite the fact that God is there and making available this mercy, it's never enough. And the people don't get it. Nothing by flesh will last. Our freedom and our salvation from sin is only won by Christ on the cross. And this is all picturing that. So with today's lesson, all we needed to learn was the pattern. The purpose is the pattern and the first example that sets that pattern, which we've done. 
Future weeks, we'll get into judges that you know better, like Deborah, Samson, Gideon, and the like. Each of them have longer stories to tell. More work is being done. But the pattern is always the same. These are people who have been raised up to deal with the sin of a people who will not listen to God through his covenant. And in each example, you learn repeatedly that this is not going to be a solution for God's people in the long run. Take that lesson to heart this week as you consider how God may be putting you to trial and to testing so he can provoke in you repentance and a new heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we enter into corporate prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for a chance to see patterns that are evident in our own life. As we consider, Lord, what you may be doing in our lives as we face trial of one kind or another, and perhaps we're dealing poorly with it. Father, put us in the right mindset to succeed and learn the proper lesson. Help us understand that the goal is not to defeat the person or even perhaps to improve our own circumstances in the way we would choose. But, Father, help us to understand that there's a work being done in our heart, that our response to our circumstances is the point, and that your building us up in the faith is the ultimate goal. And having learned that lesson, Father, we we have confidence that you will be with us in the rest that will follow. We look forward to learning those lessons, Father, so we can please you, for that is our goal. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.